0: Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the sixth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us and we'll explore the future of money, the rise of Pentecostalism, the disappearance of the human mind, the challenges facing journalism in the 21st century, the limits of science, and the relationship between science and religion, as well as the question of where does all the money go? Earlier this year, the Treasury announced that it was planning to launch a state-backed digital pound later in the decade. This CBDC, central bank digital currency, would offer a new, quote, trusted and accessible way for consumers to pay, said Chancellor Jeremy Hunt. A few months earlier, digital currencies were in the news for less happy reasons. FTX, A cryptocurrency exchange, with over a million users at its peak, collapsed. It had only been founded three years earlier, and it had, at one time, been valued at $32 billion. On the 11th of November, it filed for bankruptcy. And while all this was happening, when was the last time you took 50 quid from an ATM and spent cash, rather than putting everything on your card? Increasingly, we find ourselves in shops and restaurants asking even if they do still take cash. Money is changing and it's changing fast and in a way that many of us find bewildering. Is cash on its way out? What is FinTech? What actually is a cryptocurrency or a stable coin or a CBDC? And are they the future? And what does all this have to do with how much we trust one another. Ishwar Prasad is Senior Professor of Trade Policy at Cornell University, and his new book, The Future of Money, examines, in the words of its subtitle, how the digital revolution is transforming currencies and finance. Ishwar, welcome to Reading Our Times. Nick, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Before we jump in to the complex world of FinTech and cryptocurrencies and the future of money, we should try and explain what money even is. And you outline a very helpful three-way division setting out the different functions of money
1: early on in the book. Can you describe that for us? So traditionally, the way economists think about money is that it serves as a unit of account. In other words, when you go into a store, Um, You see prices of goods marked in, say, British pounds or U.S. dollars. So that's the unit of account function. And then there is the medium of exchange function where you can actually use uh, money in whatever form to be able to purchase a good. So in other words, you conduct a financial transaction. And then there is the store of value function where essentially you use money as a way of stashing away your savings and making sure they maintain value. But you know, while these uh, functional classifications are important, I really think about money as helping us to transfer resources across time and across space. If you think about the history of money, of course, it facilitated commercial transactions, but also a trade to be conducted among geographically very disparate locations. In the very early days, of course, money it took the form of commodities or precious metals, but those were difficult to carry around large distances. So you eventually had paper currency, which is the form most of us are used to seeing physical money in these days. So it allowed trade to take place in um, widely dispersed locations. You also draw a really interesting distinction early on
0: between outside money, or sometimes called fiat money, and inside money. Can you explain that one for us?
1: So when one thinks about money, we tend to think about pound sterling notes or uh, dollar bills, or for that matter, Chinese yuan notes. But it turns out that a lot of money that is created in the economy, which is really credit that finances activities of various sorts, such as um, consumers buying a car or businesses having money to invest, that money is actually created by commercial banks. So what commercial banks essentially do is they can, in principle, create loans out of thin air. And when they create a loan, they create a corresponding deposit. So if you were to buy a car and for that you took out a loan from your bank, then the bank could create that loan, create a deposit in your name, And then you use a deposit to pay the car dealer who in turn uses part of the deposit to pay the car manufacturer who in turn uses that to pay part of the input cost for that car and so on. Now, the important thing about this inside money is that it is created within the private sector and essentially cancels out on the private sector's overall balance sheet because what is a credit to one person is a debit to another person or another institution. But outside money is outside the private sector and is created by the central bank. It is a liability of the central bank, and it doesn't cancel out on private sector balance sheets. And in modern economies, while central banks do create money, much more of the money creation actually comes from commercial banks. And of course, the logical question might be if commercial banks can create money What prevents them from creating infinite amounts of money? And the reality, of course, is that commercial banks need to make profits and they need to make sure they're making good loans. So if they handed out money at will, they may not get paid back. And because they've created deposits corresponding to the loans, then they would be out of business pretty soon. And the limit on the amount of money
0: that governments or central banks can create basically comes from the threat of inflation. The limit used to be when it was tied to a standard like gold, for example. But for the last 50 years or so, that hasn't been the case. And the limit is
1: it's almost just self-discipline. Is that right? that's correct the one thing that central banks have is credibility which they really need in order to make sure that people that is businesses and households believe that the central bank will not print so much money that they end up essentially devaluing that money which would take the form of inflation that is uh, uh, goods and services having um, high and increasingly rising prices In the last decade and a half, it turned out that central banks were able to print a lot of money without inflationary consequences. This is quantitative easing, is that right? That's correct. Quantitative easing, which was a policy that was undertaken by many of the major central banks around the world, including the US Federal Reserve, Bank of England and so on, was essentially central banks going out and printing money and using that to buy government bonds so that governments could go out and spend. Mm. And this is actually what Creates inflationary problems when a government is reckless in its spending and it does not take in as much through tax revenues as it does through spending and then it relies on the central bank to make up the difference by printing more money, that can unleash horrendous levels of inflation.
0: So let's look into the future a bit because the book is entitled The Future of Money and a lot of people are perplexed about the direction in which we're traveling here. You begin the first section of the book talking about fintech. Now, Fintech or financial innovation has been underway for, as you've kind of already said, millennia. We have paper money from 7th century China, unbacked fiat currency in 13th century China, ATMs in the middle of the 20th century. So there's nothing new in principle with the idea of fintech. What, if anything, is different this time around? Why are so many people talking about how fintech can be really transformative?
1: You're absolutely right, Nick, that financial innovation itself is uh, nothing new. And, you know, just the creation of money in addition to, as you mentioned, the creation of paper currency and so on. Each of these were remarkable financial innovations. There is something quite different about this wave of financial innovation, which is that it is related to digital technologies. And this has two important implications. On the one hand, the use of digital technologies makes it much easier for new providers of financial products and services to be able to enter, compete, and offer those products and services. So we've seen a lot of online banks, for instance, beginning to emerge that make it very easy to start operations without having to set up brick and mortar branches, for instance. But there is another aspect of the digital transformation, which is that it now becomes very easy to offer those products and services on a mass scale at relatively low Cost, Especially low marginal cost, meaning that once you've set up the technical or digital infrastructure for these operations, then adding in customers and clients becomes very, very easy because the cost of one additional banking customer is practically zero. So now there is the prospect of being able to use many of these technologies to, first of all, directly connect savers and borrowers without having to go through clunky old banks And second, you can have a lot more competition, but also a lot more access to financial products and services. That is to say, broader financial inclusion. So at some level, digital technologies have really transformed the playing field in most ways for better, although in some ways not necessarily so.
0: And this is liable, you point out, to have a particular impact on emerging market economies, isn't it? To the extent that they may even leapfrog advanced economies, developed economies, because
1: of fintech. So emerging market economies actually have already leapfrogged in many respects, if you think about... The um, efficacy, easy uh, reach and low cost of digital payments in countries like China or India, for that matter, or even mobile payments in low-income countries like Kenya, Somalia, and so on. Those have been transformative in these countries because cash used to be king in these economies and uh, much of the population did not have access to digital payments, let alone basic banking products and services. In addition, in many of these countries, you had underdeveloped financial systems, you know, small and uh, relatively limited banking systems and few other financial markets um, working very well. In addition, you had a rising middle class and financial regulators that were willing to look a little bit away from, uh, say, mobile phone operators beginning to offer payment systems. So all of these factors put together led to digital payment technologies really taking off and taking hold in emerging market economies in a way that has not happened in the advanced economies. In advanced economies, we already have decent digital payment systems. We already have decent banking and other financial services. And we already had a middle class um, Mm. that had many of these services. So there wasn't the pressing need that there was in many of these developing and emerging market economies.
0: That's very interesting, isn't it? How it was actually the existence of a fully functioning financial infrastructure in developed economies that ironically ends up holding back this wave of financial innovation in these countries. You can see the benefits of fintech. You talk about the democratisation of finance, greater efficiency you mentioned there, greater accessibility. But I, perhaps because I'm a bit old school, have a fear of the need for regulation. I mean, the very phrase online bank fills me with, with some concern. How does one regulate this wave of fintech so that it isn't simply consumed by corrupt enterprises and unreliable banks and insolvent banks and that kind of thing?
1: Your concern is very well taken, Nick, and um, what we've seen in many emerging market economies is certainly fintech firms filling in holes, but doing so in a way that created a lot of risks. So in China, for instance, um, it was these payment giants, Alipay and WeChat Pay, that used the data that was acquired from those payment platforms, you know, the transaction histories of customers, the sort of cash flow that small businesses operating on those platforms had. Those data were fed to their corporate conglomerates and those conglomerates then started using the information they had gathered from uh, these credit and payment histories to start offering loans and various other types of financial products without having banking licenses. And that created a lot of concern. Similarly, in many developing countries that are concerns that online banks may end up not being well regulated and could take on huge risks by making very risky loans. Even in advanced economies such as the US and the UK, I think there are similar concerns. So what regulators are coming around to the view is that technology is not going to solve all problems. In fact, this is a running theme in my book that technology does offer a lot of potential for reducing inefficiencies, increasing access to financial products and services, but left to itself, it can create a lot of unforeseen, and in some cases, foreseen and significant risks. Yes. I'm glad
0: you highlighted that because I was going to come back to that right at the end, the promise of technology that it can transform so much of what we do, but the fact that it isn't sufficient, it isn't a silver bullet. We will definitely return to that, but let's go there via cryptocurrencies. You mentioned the original white paper, launching Bitcoin in 2009 from Satoshi Nakamoto. I'm right in saying we don't know who that is or whether it's an individual or a group of people. Is that
1: right? We don't know yet. Although having written this book, I go to a lot of crypto conferences and I've shared the stage with at least three or four people at last (laughs) count who all claim to be the real Satoshi (laughs) Nakamoto, but we don't know. right?
0: Well, anyway, the paper begins, I've been working on a new electronic cash system that's fully peer-to-peer with no trusted third party. And later on, as you go on to quote, the root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. So this was fascinating to me. Underlying the cryptocurrency revolution is an attempt to do away with the need to trust, isn't it? Let's start by the mechanics. How do you do away with the need to trust?
1: At one level, this is a a remarkable technological innovation. It's as though I wanted to send you some money, Nick, or or better that you wanted to send me some money. (laughs) And we wanted to do this in a way that did not require us to go through a trusted intermediary, such as a commercial bank, which could take some money from your account and put it in my account or through a credit card company or some other payment provider. To do this in a way that would allow us to conduct transactions without even knowing our true identity. So a digital nick could send a digital Ishwar money without relying on a third party. This sounds mind-boggling, mm. but Bitcoin managed to solve this problem. So It's a really phenomenal technology because it gets around a variety of problems, the need for trust, the fact that if you have digital units of money, one of the biggest problems, of course, is that you could double spend them. I mean, you could send a digital unit of money to me, to your brother, to your father, Mm. and what stops you from double spending? Now, Bitcoin solves this problem essentially through what I think of as radical transparency, every transaction by the digital Nick to the digital Ishwar and the amounts of those transactions are all posted on public digital ledgers which are maintained on multiple computers worldwide. So it's not easy to tamper with those ledgers. But there is a question about how you validate transactions still. And here the creator of Bitcoin, whoever that was, came up with a remarkably clever process whereby essentially one needed to be able to devote computing power to solving what is essentially a puzzle. And whoever solves that puzzle first gets the privilege of basically validating a block of transactions and then appending that block to an existing chain of blocks, which is where the term blockchain comes from. Now, the block of transactions that is then validated gets appended and all the account balances of people who are using Bitcoin also get updated and these are all posted on these electronic ledgers. So it becomes very difficult to tamper with them or to go back and erase or change transactions. So it is essentially the fact that this blockchain is a transparent ledger and is maintained on multiple computers that are synchronized in real time that gives the entire system security and allows transactions to be consummated without a third party. Very
0: interesting and very clever. And just spell out for us how that process of puzzle solving in order to secure the blockchain is linked to this idea of mining Bitcoin and the limited number of Bitcoins that there are, because that's also
1: very important, isn't it? So one can think about mining as basically a way of throwing guesses at a problem. So you think about it like the lottery. So you need to guess the winning numbers uh, in the lottery. Uh, so if you buy one lottery ticket, you could end up being the winner, but chances are pretty low. If on the other hand, you buy a million or 10 million tickets, you're going to be much more likely to be the one who correctly guesses the outcome. So the process of mining essentially involves dedicating huge amounts of computing power to guessing the solution to these puzzles. And the incentive to do that is that whoever is the first to guess the solution gets to validate a block of transactions and gets rewards in the form of Bitcoin. Now, that reward changes over time. Right now, if you happen to be the lucky winner that validates a particular block of transactions, you get a reward of six and a quarter Bitcoins. And that reward actually falls over time. Mm. And there is an interesting element of Bitcoin, which its adherents believe is very important to keeping its value, which is that there are ultimately going to be only 21 million Bitcoins ever created. Everything right now is managed by a computer algorithm, and there is a hard-coded element in that algorithm that there will be at most 21 million Bitcoins. So this reward that I mentioned for validating a block of transactions, that's going to decline over time, such that eventually you will get no more block rewards, as they are called. About 19 and a quarter million Bitcoins have already been created, so there's um, a little over one and a half million Bitcoins still to be created, and the view that Bitcoin adherents have is that something like a fiat currency, as we discussed earlier, can be created at will by a central bank. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is scarce. And so the notion is that something that is scarce, sort of like gold, surely must preserve value better than something that can be created in infinite quantities. To me, this is a somewhat dubious proposition, but this is what every Bitcoin proponent will tell you. But
0: presumably, the fact that there are a limited number, 21 million Bitcoins, means that it won't ever be inflationary because ultimately there is only a fixed
1: number, like a fixed amount of gold, as you say. Is that right? That's correct. So, you know, you read out some lines from Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper about Bitcoin, which argued that Bitcoin would be a trustless medium of exchange. That's what it was meant to be. It was meant to facilitate transactions. And the technology is very clever. Unfortunately, it doesn't work too well at what it was meant to do, which is serve as a medium of exchange. Because it turns out that on what is called the Bitcoin base layer, only about 2,000 transactions can be validated in one block, and one block is validated every 10 minutes. So this is just six to seven transactions per second, and it takes 10 minutes to validate a transaction. And most importantly, Bitcoin has very volatile value relative to the unit of account. So it's a terrible medium of exchange. So Bitcoin has become something it was never intended by its creator to be which is a pure speculative financial asset, which is value, because the holders of Bitcoin believe that there are others who are willing to pay as much, if not more, for that Bitcoin. So to me as an economist, just scarcity with no intrinsic value seems to be a very dubious source of value. And it's small wonder that Bitcoin has had a very, very volatile price in the last few years. Yes, I mean, you, the figures you quote in the book are astonishing. December 2015,
0: it's worth $419. December 2017, it's worth 19650 That's an extraordinary volatility, which means that it's useless is too strong a word. But I can't really see how or why anyone would invest hard currency, dollars, in something that can change its own value by a factor of 50
1: at some level that is its appeal um, i mean if you were to invest in government bonds you might uh, in high interest periods earn maybe 5 to 6% returns if you were to invest in stocks um, you might get better returns or you might lose money but what investments are out there where you could double triple or increase the value of your investments by 10 20 30 times so that is the allure of bitcoin unfortunately it also means uh, that you need to have a very strong stomach because yes. uh, the price of bitcoin can fall as violently as it can rise but the interesting thing about bitcoin is that it's set off a revolution really and it's created a whole breed of new cryptocurrencies that try to make up for the failings of bitcoin so for instance there are some cryptocurrencies that have much stronger anonymity than bitcoin in the early days bitcoin was used to largely fuel activities on the dark web you know illicit transactions of various sorts It turns out that Bitcoin transactions can be unraveled. So if the digital nick were to use Bitcoin to conduct a large number of transactions, he might be revealed to be the true nick. If, on the other hand, you think about the main problem of Bitcoin, which is its uh, unstable value, there are now cryptocurrencies called stable coins, which, interestingly, have stable value. But how do they get the stable value? Essentially, they are backed up by reserves of fiat currencies for instance there is a stable coin called tether which maintains a value of one dollar per coin and the way that happens is that every time a unit of tether is issued it is backed up according to the company that issues it by one dollars worth of u.s government bonds or other types of financial assets and this is a very rich irony because the whole point of cryptocurrencies was to get away from central bank money. But cryptocurrencies that actually work well as mediums of exchange get their stable value and therefore can serve as mediums of exchange precisely because they are backed up by fiat currency.
0: Exactly. That's exactly the point I was going to make. You've come full circle there, haven't you, in terms of your desire to do away with trust? And the only way you can do that is ending up by trusting the fiat currency of of central banks. You mentioned the issue of anonymity there and traceability, and that's really, really important and interesting. You say early on, if cash gave way and payment systems were overwhelmingly digital, any notion of maintaining anonymity and privacy in financial matters would be severely compromised. Now, you pointed out there that actually Bitcoin maybe isn't as anonymous as all that. But there is a real concern there more broadly with digital currencies, isn't there, of the way in which any transactions you conduct can be traced and any anonymity and with it some freedom that you have with a system like
1: cash is lost. Is that something we should be concerned about? That's a hugely important point, Nick. The reality is that payments are becoming increasingly digital. If you think about emerging market countries like China, India, Brazil, um, the use of cash is plunging. In Sweden, hardly anybody uses cash anymore. Interestingly, there are three large advanced economies the U.S., Japan, and Switzerland, where cash is still used extensively in low-value transactions. But the reality is that digital payments, because they're very convenient, they don't involve the hassle of using cash. Cash is subject to loss, theft, and so on. It's a very appealing proposition for consumers, businesses, and even for governments, because it brings economic activity out of the shadows and into the tax net. Now, digital payments can be conducted through... Apple Pay, Google Pay, through credit cards, through bank deposits, which are mostly electronic. Uh, As you said, cryptocurrencies are not working too well on that, but central banks are thinking about issuing digital forms of their own money. Now, it's worth emphasizing that central bank digital currencies are very, very different from cryptocurrencies. They're not using that technology. Uh, The payments will be managed by central banks, but They are digital. Right now, if you as a customer want to use central bank money, you really have to use dollar or pound sterling bills. But we are moving to a world where central banks will also start offering digital versions of their own money. Now, my view is that anything digital ultimately is going to be traceable. It turns out there are ways using technology that you might be able to provide some degree of transactional anonymity. But I think the reality is that if you use a digital form of payment, Ultimately, that transaction is going to be visible to a commercial bank, a credit card provider, or to a central bank or a government agency. And that is certainly very troubling. No matter what sort of provisions there are in place to ensure that at least low-value transactions will not be visible, the reality is that anything digital can be unraveled, and no central bank wants to allow its money to be used for illicit or illegal transactions without any safeguards. So I fear we may be coming to the day when whatever minimal vestiges of privacy we still have are going to go out the window. Mm. So as we think about moving to a world with central bank digital currencies and only digital forms of payment, I really think that we need to be having conversations about this, not just as economists or technocrats, but really at the level of society whether this is what we want. The
0: advantages of a central bank digital currency are that ideally it improves financial inclusion and it also allows helicopter drops of money. It allows a central bank to concentrate money in places, sectors, where it's particularly needed at a certain time. Are they the main attractions of a CBDC
1: Actually, it's a little more subtle that when we economists talk about helicopter drops of money, it's not quite, you know, giving credit preferentially to certain people or others. It's basically just topping up your central bank account with a uniform amount of money. So, for instance, in the U.S., we had a lot of stimulus payments that went out during the COVID period. But people who didn't have electronic deposit records and file with the Internal Revenue Service, which manages the tax system, they ended up getting checks or debit cards in the mail. Many of these were lost, mishandled, misappropriated. Mm. If everybody had a central bank digital currency account, uh, the central bank could basically plop money into each each of those accounts, it should be a lot easier. In principle, you could also have um, something that many central banks around the world try to impose, which is a negative nominal interest rate. So, you know, when an economy is in deep trouble, as has been the case a couple of times over the last 15 years, Mm. you want to give consumers an incentive to go out and spend. You want to give businesses an incentive to invest rather than hold or save their money. And if you offer a negative rate of return, a negative interest rate, you incentivize people to go out and spend or invest. Now, when the option of cash is available, you can't drive interest rates negative because cash is something that has a zero nominal rate of return. So everybody would move into cash if you try to make interest rates negative. But with electronic money, you start opening up all sorts of possibilities. Now, none of these are possibilities that any central bank would use lightly. But I think of these as desperate measures for desperate times. And the important thing is the CBDC gives you the ability to undertake some of these sorts of monetary policy actions if the circumstances were really dire. Interestingly, so it effectively equips a
0: central bank to be able to respond with greater flexibility in times of urgent need.
1: That's correct. But there are also advantages of CBDCs even in normal times. You alluded to the issues about financial inclusion, more efficient payments and so on. But just getting economic activity out of the shadows and increasing tax revenues, which at least the government might see as a benefit without raising tax rates simply because all activities are now um, in the open rather than in the shadow economy where they're transacted using cash. Um, Those are some useful advantages. Now it's very clear from what we've
0: talked about in our conversation and, and the book that cash is really on its way out. But there's a kind of a bittersweet element to that because we know its disadvantages, but you talk at one point about a primal appeal of cash and how also when you're paying for something with cash, you're conscious Of handing over money in a way that you're absolutely not when you're just tapping a card on a reader. And I wonder whether there is something important we lose, as well as the anonymity which you've just touched on, whether there's something important we lose
1: if we move away entirely from cash in an economy it's sort of like you're being able to hold up my book and read a physical copy of my book and make marks. Sure, you could hold up a Kindle and show my book cover on it, but it wouldn't be the same. It absolutely uh, wouldn't be the same, that's right. And like you, Nick, I think that cash has a certain appeal that is very hard to displace. You know, tapping my phone um, for making contactless payment doesn't quite create the same sort of connection between me and my coffee barista that it might be if I proffer a $10 bill or a five pound note and uh, leave a tip using that. In fact, I still occasionally tip my Uber drivers and my coffee baristas in cash. Somehow it just seems the right thing to do. And we would certainly be giving up on that. And, you know, if you look at currency banknotes around the world, there is a lot of history and society's views about themselves embedded in how those currency notes are printed, what sort of images are on them, and so on. The unfortunate reality is, though, that the convenience to consumers and businesses is beginning to take over. And I fear that those of us, like you and me, Nick, who care about cash might be a dying breed. (laughs) Let's draw
0: our conversation together. What really struck me with the book was that for a subject that had a potential to be so technical, there are some really primary human concerns in there. Much of it is about privacy. Much of it is about transparency as well. Much of it is about trust and the different means by which we interact with one another. And you mentioned earlier that if there's an underlying narrative or theme to the book, it's that technological fixes alone are not sufficient and that really conversations about money are always embedded in wider moral and social conversations about who we are and what we value and how we relate to one another. Can you explain to us where you see us going, what might we be expecting to see in the next 20 years or so, and how do you think that will shape those interactions, the way we engage with one another, the need to trust one another, the need to trust government? Where is the future of money taking us as a society?
1: So what the cryptocurrency revolution was meant to lead us towards was a world with a more democratization of finance, so the big bad banks would no longer be crucially important for financial intermediation, where central banks would become less important, and to a world with people power, where essentially cryptocurrencies would be run and managed and with all transactions validated by the consensus of the entire community. What we are learning is that there is no real substitute for trust. Trusted institutions are very important. And when you think about the failure of centralized exchanges like FTX, uh, which blew up spectacularly, what FTX was supposed to be was essentially a place where you could keep Your cryptocurrency assets and trade them efficiently. So even people who believe in the decentralizing power of cryptocurrencies essentially ended up keeping a lot of their money in a centralized institution that they could see. So I think this speaks to a primal need that we all have to have institutions or other people that we can trust in some direct way. Now, what cryptocurrencies have really pointed out is the enormous deficiencies in existing financial markets and institutions. The fact that you don't have efficient digital payments in a lot of the world, the fact that you have many people, especially low-income, low-net-worth households, who don't have access to basic products for managing credit, savings, risk, and so on. The fact that international payments are extremely slow, inefficient, and expensive, which affects importers, exporters, economic migrants sending remittances back to the home countries, and a lot of inefficiencies in the existing financial system. So even if cryptocurrencies disappear, I think they have catalyzed a very important revolution that I think is going to get us to much better financial markets, institutions, and regulatory structures. But I think as societies, as concerned citizens, we should be very wary of leaving technology to itself because it might lead us to a much darker place instead. The book is called The Future of Money, How the Digital Revolution is
0: Transforming Currencies and Finance. Ishwar, Prasad, thank you very much indeed
1: for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you so much for your interest in my book, Nick, and that was a really fun conversation. I enjoyed it very much. Next week... I'll be speaking to
0: the academic Sheila Jasanoff about her book, Can Science Make Sense of Life?
1: But I do also think that serious change in the ways in which we think about progress has to come about. Progress isn't simply the newest technology that we can incorporate. You've been
0: listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos produced by Phil Bodger and our team includes Lizzie Harvey and Daniel Turner Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and you can also find us on our website theosthinktank.co.uk where you can find all the episodes from this series and the previous series and leave feedback Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes It'll help other people discover the podcast.